When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So I'd like to reveal to our listeners a little bit of our midnight myth methodology, if you're okay with that. Whoa, we're going to we're gonna pull back the curtain? Yeah, we're going to break down the fourth wall of the podcast if there is such a thing, which I don't think there is. Um, usually we take a particular subject that we want to talk about. Sometimes it is inspiration from a moment in our lives. Like we did an episode when I was reflecting on how Donald Trump kept calling everything he disagreed with fake news. And so then we did an episode about that, but we found a piece of pop culture that fit into it. Sometimes there is a particular story that really moves us and there's a dialogue around it. And then we want to talk about it. And then we take our time and we try to look at this from every possible different angle to add something different or new to the conversation. In short, we do a lot of research for each episode. Uh, We try to find what other scholars are saying, what other fans are saying, and really kind of lend a new and different voice. And that's usually how we approach every single episode. Our relationship to other people who are out there analyzing pop culture is sort of like the walk-off in Zoolander, where uh, one model uh, walks and then the other model duplicates and then er elaborates. Exactly. And uh, this episode, the methodology is a little different because every once in a while, there's something happening that you just kind of have to jump in and discuss, you know, and there's something that you just really can't avoid. And we just got out of seeing for the second time Black Panther, the latest installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I felt compelled to just come into the studio and do an episode centered around this movie. And I I think because it's worthy of just instant analysis, praise and discussion. Absolutely. And we're excited to be here talking about you or talking about it with you tonight. 
Uh, before we jump into talking about Black Panther, uh, we would love to uh, to hear from you here at the podcast. If you have anything that you want to add to our conversation, if you have any thoughts, any questions, any suggestions, please reach out to us. You can always hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, or on Facebook. We also have a contact form on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. You can fill that out there. And if you're just joining us or if you've been listening without hitting that subscribe button, go ahead and hit that button. And uh, if you're so inclined, leave a rating or a review to help us get out there and uh, reach more people. And to everyone that has ever tweeted at us, left us a review, thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are awesome. You're the reason that I do this because it's great to know that we have fans that want to listen. Um, Without further ado, I'd like to jump into the movie Obviously, we are going to spoil the living hell out of it. If you haven't seen Black Panther, you're probably one of the few in the world who hasn't at this point, because it seems like everybody has seen the movie. But from here on in, we're going to spoil it. I don't want you listening to this podcast if you haven't seen it. Go out and see the movie. And then come right back and, and then, join us and for then our come conversation. Back and, yes. So, spoiler wall is up as of now. Some fun things. Um, it's first week globally, Black Panther made $500 million of ticket sales. That's just like a, a little bit of money. It's insane. Yeah. It's an insane number. It's second week, it did $100 million, which one might say like, oh my God, that's such a huge drop off. For the film industry and the movie industry, that's actually unprecedented to do $500 million one week and then $100 million the next yeah, week. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, so this movie is a phenomenon. Um, my first question that I have for you, Laurel... Why is it so successful? It's successful, I think, for a lot of reasons. This is a cinematic universe that's been building for at least 10 years now since the first Iron Man movie, and people are pretty bought in at this point. So there are a lot of us who, regardless of how we feel about some of the stuff that's coming out and how you know some of us might be a little lukewarm, uh, I know I am on a lot of what Marvel has been cranking out for the past couple of years. We're still sort of uh, in chains. We're still tethered to this universe because we need to know what happens on the steps to the next uh, point in the journey. And that can be a little shackling. But I think uh, further than that, it is successful because, of course, we have a revolutionary uh all, all, almost all African-American cast, which is huge. And it's a dynamite cast at that with huge stars like Forrest Whitaker and Angela Bassett holding it down with all these newcomers on the scene too, who are really hot, who are making waves on black, on black mirror and who are making waves elsewhere in the, uh, pop culture universe. But I think at the very heart of it, what is continuing to propel this movie to great heights is that it is a really, really good story, is that for the first time in a while, Marvel is investing in its characters and investing in world building to a point that we truly connect with not only the heroes uh, or their sidekicks, but we're even connecting on a whole new level with the villains. And it's articulating arguments more clearly than it ever has. We can put this one up next to Civil War, which is another one that, uh, really tried to make a political argument and make a moral argument uh, or show two conflicting sides of one and did so with sort of so-so results, sort of muddled results. And this movie takes its moral and philosophical and political arguments 
and embodies them so beautifully in these two characters of Killmonger and uh, and T'Challa that we walk out of there having to find our own path in between. And we can really feel drawn to both of those characters at different points in the movie. Wow. I, uh, I largely, largely agree with everything that you said and think that you said it pretty perfectly in terms of why it's so powerful. Cause I think it talks the talk and walks the walk. Yeah, for sure. You know, it, it delivers the goods and everyone that sees it is saying, wow, did you see that movie? You have to see it. Hence people are still seeing it. I would also like to add, I think in 2018, a year into the Trump regime and the, the, the rise of xenophobia, racial animus, and, you know, uh, a return to a little more of a darker American vision that says America is just for us white people, you know? And I think a cultural response is to say, no, you know what? This, this movie Black Panther proves, no, it's not just for white people that we can have a movie that celebrates at its core diversity and celebrates at its core pluralism and the idea of a truly like, you know, unique global identity, which we'll get into, I think some of the central political arguments of this movie. And I think it delivers that in a way that very few other movies could or would and other movies that try end up doing it insincerely I think this movie is very sincere in what it's trying to say and how it says it. And I think we should jump right into that. Fuck yeah, let's do it. So I'd like to start. I I think uh, since we're kind of doing this on the fly here, I'm going to forego a recap. Let's assume everyone has seen it and is familiar with it. Yeah, and you've seen it recently, obviously, if you've seen it. Absolutely. So we we don't need to go deep into the actual point by like, like plot it out and whatnot. Anyway. I'd like to talk about, I think my entry point is to this movie uh, is ritual. And I'd like to talk about how this movie utilizes ritual and how we see ritual and the dichotomy between both the antagonist and protagonist. And that is once someone has been crowned king in the land of Wakanda, they are first, they have to go through a ritual combat. Uh, which they purge the Black Panther, the vibranium-fueled plant that one invibed gives someone super strength and super speed. They have to the purge that. The herb. And then once that is purged, they re-drink this herb, and then they get buried. And they get buried in the garden where these herbs are grown. And then in that buried, they travel in a sort of like metaphysical, transcendental maybe purely, you know, hallucinatory, who knows, where they get to interact with their ancestors in which the ancestors impart something to them and then they wake up and then they're king. I would say that even though the king gets crowned once they complete the combat and once they are officially crowned, they're not really the king until they go through this ritual. I think this ritual is significant in its symbolism in that it, kills the person you were before the king symbolically and has you reborn as the king. And I think that ritual has deep, deep roots in storytelling and in mythological and historical um, analysis. Absolutely. Just deconstructing the imagery of that ritual 
uh, and we'll look at how they how they did it with T'Challa after he has won his ritual combat. They clean him, they dress his wounds, they place him in this pit, and they cross his arms over his chest before burying him in the reddish sand. And that's an extremely death-like, burial-like image. It's what we would do, how we would clean and treat the bodies of our beloveds when we give them proper burials. And that's how he's able to access this ancestral plane where he wakes up still in the dirt and shakes the dirt off of him, uncrosses his arms and enters this new plane of existence. Yep. And how do we know burial is important to the Wakandans other than this ritual? In two other points, they mention burial being important. The first is when T'Challa is upset that his uncle didn't get a proper burial. And um, when when it's revealed that his father, the king, kills his uncle and leaves his body there. And the second is when Killmonger throws T'Challa off of the the waterfall, and then we see his sister and his mother, Siri and the queen mother, crying, and she goes, but we didn't even get to bury him. So we know that to the, the Wakandan people, the act of a ritualistic burial is important to them. And we know that at many times they're like, what is their sounding prayer? Praise the ancestors. So we know that they believe in a form of afterlife. And so when characters are separated from the proper burial, we get the sense that they don't get their way to that actual afterlife. So they reenact this as one king dies and another one is born. That king has to be buried and then reborn. So I think that is an interesting little twist. Some other um, places in which we have to see a character go through a ritualistic form of death in order to become the person they need to be. It happens in the Odyssey. Odysseus has to go to the underworld in which he sees his uh, family. He sees Achilles. He sees Tiresias and then has to exit the underworld in order for him to go home and claim his kingship. Uh, uh, Heracles has to go into the underworld and retrieve the Cerebus. Uh, Persephone goes into the underworld and has to come back in order for the ending of the famine. Um, Osiris, the Egyptian god, gets killed and dismembered, a form of death, and has to be reassembled and then is reborn, and then he becomes the king of the underworld. Uh, Virgil and the Aeneid, so Aeneas must go into the underworld before he can go and, f- and get to Rome and form Rome in Virgil's, Ane- Virgil's Aeneid. It is a, a, a huge wealth. I mean, and that's just in yeah, uh, Greek and Roman literature. We could go all over the world and find this. I do want to point just to the Egyptian call out that you made to Osiris because there are also moments in, in the sort of Wakandan, uh, the way they speak to each other and, and say praise Hanuman, or talk about the panther goddess that recall Egyptian uh, mythology and and gods uh, in a way that I think is is helpful for the world building, and that we know that this is this is a place where five tribes have settled in the heart of Africa, and so they're bringing their mythologies and bringing their stories and absorbing the stories of those around them. So it's a it's a place where this wealth of mythology has been. Uh, sort of bred amongst one another. So it makes sense that we would have similar uh, kingship rituals 
to the the classical mythologies of of west and east and south and everywhere. Totally. And of course, uh, you know, T'Challa gets to go through this, but this is not his first trial. His first real trial as king is when his cousin Killmonger returns and he comes in with a new idea on how Wakanda should operate and how it should interact with the world. He comes with a claim to the throne and he comes with a personal vendetta that was given to him to avenge his father's uh, death and his father's murder. And when he comes and claims the throne, he goes through the same ritual. And I think when he comes out of it, what does Killmonger do? He burns the place to the ground. So Killmonger to me represents so many things, but in this one respect, he represents the respect of the tradition only as a means to get to what he wants. And that is the throne. And once he gets there, he has to destroy the place where other Kings are born. I think in this way and in this respect, we can, we can sense as an audience that he's going to be a bad King because he doesn't respect the power and that he is willing to look at anything and everything as a means to his ends and not be the quote unquote good King. I love this. So uh, you brought up ritual as your sort of entryway to understanding this movie. And I think that's really important because we're set up with a number of, of dichotomies here. Wakanda itself is a really interesting dichotomy of a place that is steeped in tradition, that is steeped in this glorious Africanness uh, that looks so exotic to us as an American audience. Uh, and and calls back to ancient rituals and traditions, but it's also a place that is one of the most powerful technological uh, just heavens on on Earth. And it's hidden, but what's happening in this place is almost like magic. The work that they are doing to advance technology, and so we have this really interesting duality here between tradition and progress. And it's easy to set those two up as extremes that can't live side by side as things that can't exist and coexist peacefully. But that I think is a huge part of this movie is extremes learning to live and coexist peacefully by way of the middle path, because there is a way to love your tradition, love your country uh, and follow the rituals set up by your ancestors and your forefathers. And also run a lab where you create some of the most amazing technological advancements on earth. Uh, and then another thing that you said that I think the, the, the way to uh, combine uh, extremes or to find the middle way through extremes is one path to becoming what you just said, a good King. So here's my entryway to understanding this movie. Do it. We have several archetypes for the uh, the masculine character that we are given in mythology and uh, and storytelling throughout time, and one of the most powerful and most uh, most resonant versions of man that we see in stories, the stories that we have continued to tell over the years, is the archetype of the king. Uh, and there are so many call-outs that I could make here. Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, Mufasa in The Lion King, and King Arthur, of course. 
And this movie, Black Panther, is one man's journey for how to be a good king, how to perfectly live the archetype of the king. So when I talk about the archetype of the king, we have to understand that there is a lot that goes into ruling and a lot that goes into being a good ruler that doesn't just include sitting on a throne. Uh, And so there are a lot of characteristics that are laid out for us. And these are compiled in the book King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. It's a really cool book that lays out these different archetypes for man. Uh, And the archetype of the king has these characteristics. He is centered. So when we think of T'Challa, he's a very grounded person and his energy is very centered, right? He is decisive. So he's not someone who wavers between uh, ideas. He is someone who can make decisions. This is something that T'Challa is somewhat lacking in the beginning, right? Well, you know what? I would say one of his first decisions as king is to whether or not he should go get uh, Claw. And he says, nope, I'm going to get him. You know, so he 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 does, he does make decisions and is decisive when he makes them. It's just that as we see him grow, I think he learns to make better decisions. And he learns to confront and, and figure out which are the decisions that are most important to make. Because the the most important decision he has to make, he has to find his way to the right course. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lives with integrity. He protects his realm. He provides order. He creates and inspires creativity in others. And he blesses the lives of others. So there is a, there's a lot that goes into creating this kind of man, this kind of character. And it takes work. Something that T'Chaka, the king who is uh, T'Challa's father, says to him in the ancestral realm is, you're a good man with a good heart. It's hard for a good man to be king because it's so much more than just living with integrity. You have to inspire. You have to uh, lead. You have to protect. And so just like Wakanda, which lives on the intersection of tradition and progress, T'Challa is a character who has to walk that line, who has to protect and also serve, who has to find that middle path between the extremes that people might be pulling him toward. Uh, There's an ancient Celtic idea that the king and the land are tied, uh, and it's it's articulated in one of our favorite movies, Excalibur, really beautifully by Merlin, who says, you will be the land and the land will be you. And that's, If you succeed, the land will flourish. And if you <laughs> fail, the land will perish. And as silly as it sounds, that's an ancient idea. It shows up in Arthurian legend a lot, in uh, especially the Fisher King, who is a king who is wounded and unable to really lead his people. And because of that, the land is barren and it's become a wasteland that the, uh, the flourishing and the survival of a country is based and tied almost supernaturally to the flourishing of the king. So we know that if Killmonger succeeds in his plan, Wakanda is going to become barren, right? Wakanda will stop bearing fruit. He has burned down the heart-shaped herb garden. He has decided to flush out anything that grows, and his energy, his hate will take that place that that produces so much and make it not produce. Right. You know, and I think if we ask ourselves, what are the characteristics that make, uh, you know, the Black Panther, you know, T'Challa, 
a good king? And why is this a journey of him to the good king? I think it begs the question in the dichotomy, because I do think this movie is about dichotomy. What makes Killmonger, what makes him a bad king? And I think when we see the list of qualities, some of those Killmonger possesses. He's decisive. He inspires. So part of the reason his coup is successful is he's inspired another tribe to follow him of the five tribes. You know, so he has support by virtue of his military and, you know, weaponized prowess and his intelligence and his charisma. And he gains the support of Wakabi, who was once the greatest friend and confidant of T'Challa because he makes a grand gesture. He makes a show of bringing back the greatest enemy of Wakanda in a body bag. And that's inspiring. That makes people want to rise up for your cause. But what we see with him and why he would be a bad king is that his heart has been poisoned by the tragedy he has suffered. And because he has suffered this tragedy, he is incapable of seeing other persons as full persons. And because of that, he sees other persons as means and tools by which he can manipulate to get to his end goal, which is Wakandan domination. And it's interesting that Killmonger is not looking to dominate simply to dominate. One thing that this movie does exceptionally well compared to the other MCU movies, and that would be the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, is that Killmonger has a motivation that is very sympathetic. He has a point, yeah. He has an argument about why Wakanda should share in its technology and how Wakanda has been culpable in the suffering of the descendants of Africa in other places and in other lands, in particular America. And he's right, you know, and he is correct that Wakanda, its lack of action is as bad, if not worse, than those that have been the oppressors. And because of his, his a way to see the problem correctly, we can sympathize and empathize but it's when he ceases to see other human life as value is when he crosses this gulf from potentially a hero into a villain. Right. Uh, I, I want to illustrate kind of that, that idea that he has grown to see people as, as means rather than ends in the dual visions going back to the, to the you know, death ritual that let's, they do. Let's do that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in those dual visions uh, that we have between T'Challa and Eric. And T'Challa's vision is really quite beautiful. He steps into this lush African paradise with panthers in the trees, and there's this purple sunset, and he speaks with his father, and it's this really cathartic moment where he gets to kind of apologize for not being able to save him and say, I'm not ready to live without you, and I, I... I know I can be king, but I didn't want this that soon. And T'Chaka says something really interesting. He says, a man who hasn't prepared his children for his own death has failed as a man. Have I ever failed you? And T'Challa says no. And that's, that's, one, that's one way to live life, right? To, to impart to your children the idea that, uh, that you are going to die doesn't mean they can't mourn for you. Totally. The other vision. Oh, go on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, go. Yo, keep, 
you, you're on a roll. You're on, you're on fuego. Keep going. The dueling vision that we get is a, a similar one when, uh, when Killmonger becomes the Black Panther after he's won the ritual combat. They bury him and he goes to the ancestral plane. And instead of walking out into this gorgeous paradise, he walks into his apartment in Oakland, which is where he found the body of his father. And he confronts his father as well. And it's a really moving and tender moment where they're reunited. And the the boy of Killmonger, the boy Eric, who's sitting there in the room, can't cry. He doesn't feel, uh, he doesn't mourn. And the father, Njobu, asks him, no tears for me? And Eric says, everybody dies. It's around here. It's just the way it is. And that's that's tragic, right? That's terrible that because of the circumstances of his upbringing, he he feels so uh, so accustomed to death. He has been so prepared for the death of his father that he does not even value it to a certain extent. Of course, it does mean something to him. It is a motivation for him deep down, but that's the other end of the extreme. One of these characters is able to mourn even though he knows that everybody has to die, and another character just descends kind of into a nihilistic, everyone dies, therefore no life has meaning, extreme. And that's why he's able to become an operative for the U.S. government and take so many lives that he can scar little bits of his body over and over again until it completely covers his chest and he can earn the name Killmonger because human life has no worth to him. Yeah, and I think it's telling that T'Challa, when he sees his father, he's like, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, I'm not ready to live without you. And that he wakes from his vision, now truly formed as the king, smiling, saying, my father was there. And that Killmonger, at the end of that, says, maybe we're not lost. Maybe it's your people that are lost. Yeah, maybe Wakanda is lost. And we are seeing the difference between internalization and externalization. So T'Challa internalizes his grief. It is his grief and his alone. And he has to find a way out of that grief. And that grief is losing the father. And because he got a long and loving relationship with his father, he is able to deal with his father's passing and able to enter the next phase of his life, which is to step into his father's shoes. Killmonger, having been robbed of that, externalizes. He puts that pain on others. It is not he that has to bear it. Death is a fact of the world to which he will have to deal with. He will have to, in fact, come to master. And as a master of death, he loses his soul, but he gains power. And... It's the bargain that he has made by becoming this fierce and vicious warrior. And his father says, no tears for me. And he says, there are no tears. What's interesting is the boy, we see Killmonger in his trip to the ancestral realm. We see him both as an adult and as a boy. Yeah. And the boy doesn't cry, but the adult does. Yeah. Suggesting to us as viewers that there is a deep swell of emotion and feeling bubbling under the surface of this warrior Killmonger. And I think it's precisely because Killmonger devotes himself to war entirely that will make him a bad king. 
is at the end of the day, all he knows how to do is kill. And T'Challa can do more than that. And I think one of the great sins of the MCU is to put the third act to be a gigantic CGI shit show where it's just like add and add and add and just make the battle as ridiculous. One thing that this movie did apart from it that I thought was so lovely is it added in the Vibramian train to slow down the fight between the Black Panther and Killmonger to make them stop and to make them have to look at each other and to communicate. And the one thing that T'Challa correctly says is in your quest to kill these things that you see are wrongs in the world because they are wrong, you have become the very thing you want to fight against. And that is the tragedy of, of Eric Killmonger. That is the tragedy of that character, that he finally gets to Wakanda and he never sees the sunset. And it takes until his last moment to, to actually recognize that he never sees the sunset. And I think that is the one of the, the, the many, many reasons that this, this movie is exceptional. It's because it took the time to slow down that fight and to allow us to fully see the two different sides. And interestingly enough, when T'Challa gets back to the ancestral realm, when he gets de- when he is defeated by Killmonger, when he is on the edge of death and invibes into the heart-shaped plant and gets back to the ancestral realm, he yells at his father. He realizes that it is now for him, it is now on him to right the wrongs of the previous uh, reigns that his father, who he thought never failed him, failed him in the most personal way took his uncle and his cousin, you know, and, and, and like, and because of that and lied, lied, lied to everyone. The lie that his father needs to tell to protect Wakanda is so inherently corrupt. It's only natural outgrowth is Killmonger. Yeah. Is to create this like horrible villain. And that it's, it is T'Challa gets the opportunity to look his father in the eye and tell him, you created this, and now I have to deal with it. Yeah, you failed me. And what makes him a good king is he's able to see Killmonger's argument, but because he sees people as inherently valuable, he is able to change Wakanda policy so that Wakanda can become part of the world at last. It can drop down this pretense that it's just a nation of poor farmers and share its wealth and prosperity. And it's fucking beautiful. Yeah, it, it really is. really is fucking beautiful. And here's what makes... I'm pumped up. What makes Killmonger, I think, the best villain of the MCU. I, I don't know if anybody would disagree with me on this, but what makes Killmonger the best villain of the MCU is not just that he has an argument that we can sympathize with, that's a huge part of it, but that... More than any other villain in this universe, he is perfectly matched for the hero. The hero and the villain are perfectly matched for one another. They represent these two very extreme ends of a spectrum, and yet because of that, they are they're mirror images of one another. So T'Challa, his, his position at the very beginning of this movie is preserve tradition, do things the way we have always done them. My father was a good man, and I'm going to follow in his footsteps and protect my country, protect Wakanda, because Wakanda is the most important thing, this national identity. Uh, and he thinks he can do this 
with goodness because he is a good man with a good heart. And Eric's idea, Killmonger's uh, way of thought is we have the ability to free our brothers and sisters across the world who have been oppressed for centuries, who were carried over in, in slave ships and who have been just beaten down and, and imprisoned and incarcerated for you know these horrible, horrible, uh, just so many years of, of pain and oppression. It's like, fuck, how do we not do anything about that? But his methodology is so twisted that he wants to arm all of those people and create an uprising and take over the world, which is is extreme. So it's, it's as amazing as his argument is that, like, yes, we actually do need to empower those who are not empowered to rise up against their oppressors. You can't do it by force. You can't do it by violence. And so how do we reconcile these these two just immovable pillars, one that is close to tradition and uh, national identity and one that says there is a brotherhood of man and all life crawled out of this country so all people are your people. How do we reconcile those two ideas of identity? There's a middle path. Uh, This movie preaches that there is always a way to come together And that middle path, I think, is perfectly embodied in the character of Nakia. Uh, We haven't said too much about the women characters in this yet, and that's a shame because the women characters in this are some of the best women characters on the big screen. I Uh, totally, totally agree. And we're not ignoring yeah. them, which was just so much it to say about took this so movie. Long to get to them. But Nakia, played by Lupita Nyongo, is uh, the love interest, ex girlfriend of T'Challa. But she is. And super spy. And super spy, yes. Yeah. So she is a spy who has been out in the world on these sort of humanitarian missions. And she comes back to Wakanda for uh, the coronation of T'Challa and to celebrate with him and to mourn uh, his father. And she immediately says, I got to get back out there because I found my calling. I have to help people. And she is dead set on changing Wakandan policy now that T'Challa is uh, in power. And he's like, we're going to do things the way that we always did them. But she believes that we have a responsibility. Wakanda has a responsibility to help those outside who need us who need to be empowered, who can who can have so much more. They have nothing and we have everything. And so there's a, a, a moral responsibility. And so she's similar philosophically to Killmonger, but her methodology is outreach. It's refugee programs. It's foreign aid. And it's setting a, a positive example for how to treat your fellow man. There's a really telling line uh, by by T'Challa early in the film when he's first confronting Killmonger when he says, I'm not king of the whole world, I'm king of Wakanda. And that's contrasted by his final press conference to the United Nations when he first says we're going to offer aid and we're going to offer access to our resources where he says we're all one tribe. Only the foolish build barriers, the wise build bridges. Because at the end of the day, He's not just king of Wakanda. In order to be a truly good king, you have to be a global citizen. You have to recognize the needs of all mankind, and you have to be the king not of, but for all mankind. Drop the mic, but they're on stands. They're on stands. We can't drop them, and they're expensive. Yeah, I I think it's worth 
also us discussing the the wealth of of female characters in this. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is a and I think Nakia represents more like she could have simply been the love interest and a spy and been cool and been great. And I think we would have enjoyed it. But it's a testament uh, to the, 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 the writer of the movie, um, I'm blanking on his name, Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler. It's a testament to Ryan Coogler, who wrote and directed the movie, to make her one of the reasons she can't be with the man she loves. And Queen, which is pretty awesome, like we all, it's good to be the king and queen, is because she feels Wakanda has a duty and responsibility to help, and it's shirking that responsibility. And the barrier for T'Challa and Nakia is the fact that she can't ignore the suffering of others. And T'Challa is stuck in this position. The woman I love wants me to do something. I've been out there. It seems like I could do something, but that's just not the Wakandan way, and I need to be the king. And his sort of breakdown, or I'm sorry, not breakdown, his sort of journey, I think, is out of a Wakanda first policy yeah, into a let's step into the international liberal order. And I think it is a scathing rebuke of and a scathing criticism of Trumpism at the end of that movie. Sure. When he goes to the the international community, he goes to the UN and says, we're all one tribe yeah. versus our president who says that people in Africa live in shithole countries. And he says that only dumb people build walls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yes. and, and I think that is a very telling, and I love the way this movie doesn't skirt around politics. It embraces politics and is comfortable making arguments through the characters. And because it's part of their emotional journey. We get to go on their journey to these arguments. It doesn't start making a political argument. It starts telling a good story that leads us to making a good political argument. And it finds a way to do that with nuance, which I think is, is incredibly important because like I said, we're looking for that middle path. You can reject a, an American America first. You can reject Wakanda first. You can reject like, crazy nationalism, but you don't have to completely reject patriotism. You can maintain your love of your own culture. You can maintain your love of the tribe that you are closest with and still value all human beings on this planet and want to help them the best you can and pay it forward or pay it back. I there is a way to do both. I totally agree with you. I am a blue-blooded, bleeding heart love America, dude. You know, yeah. like, I think my country is exceptional and great and I am super fucking patriotic and I, and unapologetically patriotic. You totally are. You know, like 4th of July is my second favorite holiday other than Christmas. Cause like fucking hey, it's America. However, i also want to be a citizen of the world and think just because you're from another country doesn't mean you are living in a shithole. Yeah. Um, can I change gears a little bit? Is that okay? Yes. So history is one of my passions. Um, it's probably my biggest intellectual passion out there. If you've uh, listened to the podcast up to this point, you probably know this about me by now. And if you're new to it, um, history is my thing. So he loves history. I do. So I'd like to take uh, time to just talk a little history, if that's cool with you. 
Oh, yeah. So in the, uh, I want to say it was the mid-17th century, um, you know, European powers were going through major expeditions trying to explore the world. And they came to an international conference where they decided what parts of Africa they were going to own. And at the time, it was considered to be one of the greatest international conferences yet, because the thought process was, hey, we've all sent some explorers into this sub-Sahara Africa. Um, rather than us killing each other over who gets what, let's just divide it up now. And for the most part, the modern map that we have of African nations was drawn up then. And what happened was they just went out and conquered all of Africa, and it was pretty much divvied up between the different European powers. So we have lots of uh, French-speaking, Francophone African countries. We have uh, English-controlled African countries and so on. Dutch. Dutch and German, the whole lot. So Africa got carved up and decided on and then conquered. Right. And uh, anyone in Africa that stood in the way got fought and wiped out. And this happened to what most people don't realize is that this lasted up until, uh, you know, about 10, 20 years after World War II. There was a tight grip of Europe over Africa. And uh, it's a period called colonization. And one thing that this movie touches on is an interesting historical experiment. I think it asks... What if a part of Africa never got conquered? What if there was a part that was insulated and protected from this process of colonization? What would this African nation look like? And what would this nation be? And the answer to that is Wakanda. And in it, it has a sort of Africanness to it, but also a modernization. It has a king but it also has a council. It has the most advanced technology out there, but you know, people sometimes will wear a gorilla mask. Yeah. And it, it, it does this in a way that it also says with the vast resources of Africa, if untouched by European hands, African nations would be of the most, if not the most technologically, socially and intellectually advanced on the world. And I think that is a interesting argument as a counter argument to colonialism. And there were two colonialist arguments being made. Argument number one was the people that live in Africa are subhuman and they need to be ruled. And if we rule them effectively, we can hopefully elevate their civilization a little closer to ours but not close enough. We That's have to keep them in their, their place. White man's burden, right? That is the British argument. Yeah. The British argument was, was, you know, and their style of colonialism reflected that they found out who the local leaders were and said, okay, you're going to, we're going to rule through you. If the local leader didn't like it, they killed that local leader and went to the next one. You know, they weren't about civilizing. They were about let's control the savages then there was the French method and the French argument, which said all civilization will eventually get to the point where it'll be French, right? We are the highest form of civilization on the planet. You can't really argue with that. So, and their colonial message was 
we're going to go, we're going to completely dismantle their customs and ways and forms, and we're going to Frenchifile them. We're going to make them more like us, and we're going to do it at the point of a musket or rifle and force everyone to become more French. And their method is why in, you know, French, you know, previous French territories, everyone speaks French. Yeah. They had to, otherwise they'd get killed. Where in previous British or German occupied territories in Africa, they don't speak those languages predominantly. Those aren't the number one languages because they weren't really interested in that. They're like, let's con- like, let's just control the savages, get as many resources. And by the fact that we're here, we're elevating them. Where the French were like, no, it is our mission that if we colonize them to make them as French as possible. To assimilate them, yeah. Both are equally racist and equally horrible. Yes. Um, you know, and what we see in Wakanda is the counter argument that if left untouched, this would be the African culture that didn't have to suffer through colonialism. And I think that is such an interesting thought experiment and one that we Americans need to really learn as we evaluate, you know, the 17th year of our mission to civilize Afghanistan and its failures. Wow. Yeah. You know, we really need to, to, to look at the movie Black Panther and say, you know what? Societies are often left best when not run by an outsider. You know, and maybe that, that society won't be 100% within your interests. Maybe you have the power, but you can't really go and try to civilize another nation in your image. What's so fascinating about that argument is that that's definitely coming through in the movie, but it's also at, at sort of odds with the idea that if you are a, a, a really well-developed and wealthy nation, you owe other nations the opportunity to sort of jump in on your resources and you owe them the opportunity to like, uh, for you to come and, and intervene. And so there's a sort of weird uh, tug of war between the idea that like Wakanda has a responsibility to help other nations. America has a responsibility to help other nations. And yet it can, it can often go the wrong way if it's out of, if it's out of impure motivations, like seeing people as means rather than ends, then it goes the killmonger direction. But that's again, the sort of uh, the balance that this movie is trying to strike that there is a way to, uh, to intervene in other countries and to be global and to give aid and to help others and to do outreach as a nation politically. Uh, There's a way to do that and also do it, with empathy, with ethics, with kindness, and to be stewards rather than being colonizers. Totally. And I think I totally agree with that 100%. And like to add that those colonizers, the nations that did the colonizing, I think to date haven't fully wrestled with that history and confronted how immoral it was and what that did to the world. Yeah, and the legacy that's left on all of our nations today. And in the same vein as I think America has never truly really grappled with and atoned for and dealt with the fact that slave labor built this country for its first century. 
And I think we're still trying to grapple with that. And there are many people that are like, no, we don't need to grapple with it. It's over. It's done with slavery ended as well as. Yeah. Everybody is now on an even playing field. We have all taken the heart shaped herb. There's no black Panther. We're all just regular guys. Right. We all have the same advantages. Yeah. Right. And I think uh, we do need to confront our colonial history. We do need to confront the fact that, you know, oppression was the tool that built these great societies that we live in. And I think it is okay in a Wakandan, a pro-Wakandan way to say, I love Wakanda, but it can do more, right? I love Wakanda, but it has blood on its hands. I think we can take that argument and say, I love America, but it has blood on its hands. I love this country and the opportunities it gives me. However, it doesn't give that to every American, you know? And I think that is something that this movie plays with um, and does so well. Oftentimes a movie that addresses themes such as slavery, colonization can, and colonial history can kind of hit you over the head with its messaging. Yeah. This movie chooses to be about the people first and the politics second, which is why I think the political arguments are so powerful. It's why they hit home because rather than what we have seen, you know, in civil war, for example, is that Marvel civil war, right? We, uh, we truly learn to live inside and through these characters and see the political arguments as deeply personal and deeply specific to each of them. And that's why we can, we can truly understand them and and try to pick a side and try to find a way to that balance. Uh, T'Challa's journey to becoming a good king is paved with this question of how to truly unite those extremes. When he learns that his father was not perfect, that the king that came before him who had such a, a an important legacy was not perfect, he he realizes that he has to atone. He has to redeem Killmonger. He has to give him the opportunity to see that sunset and give him the option of living to see another day, even though Killmonger doesn't take it. And when he speaks to M'Baku of the Jabari tribe, he recognizes that that Wakanda has not reached out to them before, that Wakanda has always considered them outsiders and has never treated them on the same level as the rest of the tribes that live in harmony with them. And he has to acknowledge it and he has to atone for it, but he's not responsible for it. He is responsible for how he is going to be king in the future, which is with M'Baku on the council, which is with the Jabari as a part of Wakanda and a part of the Wakandan identity. And it's about moving forward saying, yes, we made these mistakes. I am going to be the king who rights the wrongs and assuming the responsibility, even if you personally were not the responsible one is how he finds his way to being a truly great king. I love it. And that's why the Jabari come and fight for him. And, right. that, and that's why at the end, the Jabari are sitting in his council chamber because he takes that responsibility and says, I'm not those kings. However, I will right those wrongs. And the way they play it up in the movie is that, yeah, well, he's like, I can't fight for them. And then when it's at its like darkest point, we hear those gorilla howls. The, cal- the cavalry's coming, yeah. And both times in that scene where the Jabari come in that battle at the very end, 
at both times that we've seen it in the movie, people cheered. Yeah, the whole theater breaks out into applause. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's so fucking awesome. I have some final thoughts. Do it. Uh, and that's just a, a little more on why T'Challa is a good king. Uh, based back in this book we were talking about that sets out the archetype of the king. He inspires loyalty. The Jabari fight for him because he wants to atone, because he assumes responsibility, because he is tied to the land, and so the decisions that he makes for the land have to reflect everyone who is a part of it and everyone beyond its borders. He inspires creativity. He empowers people who even are, are under him in terms of power to rise up and to be the most fulfilled versions of themselves. Nakia, he gives the opportunity to have the most impact she possibly can as an outreach person for Wakanda. He empowers his sister, Shuri, to, uh, to innovate and to give her knowledge and, and information exchange to the rest of the world. And because he doesn't sit on that throne and live with the world just on his shoulders, but expands the mantle and lets everybody take up a piece of the mantle with him. He truly does create one tribe. Great final thought. I think I would like to give my final thought too. in that same vein is uh, we could all tap into the thing that makes T'Challa a great king. We all have the capacity to inspire and to be present. And I think it starts with seeing human life as inherently valuable. And I think it starts with seeing other persons as complete and whole. I think it starts with when you do have great obstacles and enemies to overcome, when you've overcome them, take them to see the sunset and beauty and offer to heal them. Yeah. And I think T'Challa doing that, one of the definitely the most beautiful Marvel scene. And I think Marvel is an interesting thing because we always compare Marvel to Marvel. Like where does this rank in other Marvel? What I like about Black Panther is that it ranks in other movies outside of Marvel. It stands apart. And that scene in which Killmonger and T'Challa see the sunset and he allows T'Challa has defeated him. And he offers to heal him and he allows Killmonger to make the choice to live or to die is one of the great kingly moments of cinematic history where Killmonger chooses to die and he honors that and lets his enemy die. Because at that point in time, Killmonger is completely within, you know, T'Challa's fate, but he chooses to see the beauty in the world. You know, and I think if we could all, treat our enemies the way that T'Challa treats Killmonger, if we can all see the world a little more like T'Challa's, we won't have any more Donald Trumps. Until next time. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind.